millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. As always, we begin our episode by catching up on those poor sailors of the Whaler Swan stuck in the ice off the west coast of Greenland in the new year of 1837. Their situation has become incredibly perilous as huge icebergs force themselves towards their stranded ship. Friday 6th of January 1837. Strong breezes from the southwest. At 10am two large bergs showed themselves on our larboard quarter not five minutes walk from the ship, the floe in which we are situated being rent in several directions. Saunderson's Hope bore south-southeast distant 15 or 20 miles. A capstan cut up for the cabin fire, thermometer 15 degrees below zero. Monday 9th of January, 1837. Light breezes from the southward, the forepart of this day. The land showing itself very plain about 20 miles distance from the nearest part. At 2pm, the above-mentioned bergs cut our floe into several pieces. One of the cracks only eight foot from the stern, called all hands and got the remainder of the provision on deck. The bergs at the same time searing up the floor with such violence that the ship shook like a leaf and the ice roaring with an awful noise that resembled a continued thunderclap. At 5pm the press abated and the ice began to slack, the wind having got round to northeast, the ship drifting to the southwest. A foretopsail cut up this day to make bread bags of there being no chance of moving the ship. Thermometer at zero. For more information about the value of ships' logbooks such as these for the study of climate change, do please check out our episode with Dr Matt Eyre, a climate detective at the Arctic Institute of North America. He uses 200-year-old documents surviving from the Arctic whaling trade to look back at the Arctic climate. Welcome everyone to another episode of the Mariner's Mirror podcast. This week I'm talking to Felipe Fernandez Armesto, William P. Reynolds Professor of History at the University of Notre Dame in Notre Dame, Indiana. 
Philippe is an expert in world history. He's a prize-winning historian and the author of several best-selling books. His understanding of the forces that move global history and the challenges of thinking and writing about history on a global scale means that he can offer unique insights into the value and also the challenges of maritime history. Here he is. The line to America was a little dodgy at times, but what he says is particularly fascinating. So do please bear with us. Felix, thank you so much for joining me. I'm really very much looking forward to chatting to you uh, about your interest in global history, your interest in maritime history. I want to start by asking you a little bit about your own personal history and whether you remember first becoming interested in, in the sea and in, in its history. Well, thank you, Sam. It's good of you to have me. Um, I, 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 I'm only interested in the sea in a very superficial way. I mean, I'm interested in what goes on on the surface, on the <laughs> sort of people who zoom back and forth across it in craft. Um, and I, I, in a way, I, I mean, who can uh, analyse his own madness? But I, I think I got interested in that because I've always feared and rather hated the the sea. I mean, even as a, a, a child, I, I hated bucket and spade. Um, I didn't like the, the smell. I didn't like the, the noise. And, and I, I, I'm old enough, you know, to have been of that generation of schoolboys that when, when encountering alien cultures began with the Greeks and Romans. And I sympathized, you know, the Romans, Romans hated and feared the sea. And I remember when I was a little boy reading the poetry of, of Horace and thinking, yes, you know, that's the way I feel about the, the sea um, as, as well. And it, it could be in a way that it's that, um, you know, it's a sort of way of compensating for that kind of revulsion, the psychology of those who love the sea. Um, and make their lives uh, upon it, and 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 risk their lives traversing it. Often, you know, in search of new encounters, new discoveries, new experiences. That 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 does always seem to me rather weird. And um, that, I suppose, is why I've tried to study it. It's a, it certainly is an alien environment, and I think it was part of the reason that I became interested in the sea. I was I come from a naval family. My grandfather was in the navy. His father was in the navy. So we had pictures of sailing ships all over the walls, and I loved the way that it was protected by its own language. Almost that to be able to write about the sea, you have to be able to talk fluent sprit sail topmast is what I call this. And um, I, I love that sense about it that it was it was a very difficult thing to actually to get to. So. It, there was a challenge which other people, I think, were, were less able or less willing to take. And I, that's what I loved about it. Yes, well, that's most interesting. I wonder whether, you know, you had any sort of family materials, whether your your nautical ancestors left, you know, memorials, uh, written work, as well as the pictures that adorned your walls. But, of course, you know, what you're talking about, the lexicon of the sea, that sort of lingo, uh, is uh, is a fundamental part. Language is a fundamental part of of culture, and the the seagoing life does you know nourish um, kinds of relationships, a type of society that is intriguingly different from um, from the society that would enclose the same individuals if they're on land. And I, I guess the culture of um, you know really important part of maritime 
history that scholars have become increasingly interested in in my lifetime. Yeah, I think it's fascinating as well. If you go look back at, at the past and the maritime individuals, it was, it was very clear they were physically different. They looked different. They were weather-beaten. They had curious clothes. You could see a sailor from across a bar and then know it would know he was a sailor. So there really was a kind of a separation in the world, which is probably less obvious than it is today. Yes, novelists always, you know, talk about the the gate, the rolling gate of the... Um, you know the 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 tar who's um, who's used to the pitching of the the ship. Yeah. Um, yes, I I suppose that's um, uh, I suppose that's right. Although of course you know many I, I suppose in order to have a great individual impact on maritime history, you've also got to be very adjustable, very very flexible, and adapt well to the landlubber's world. You know, when you come back from your seaborne adventure, you've got to tell the story uh, convincingly. And, and of course, you know, mariners do have also a great reputation as, as storytellers who hold you with their glittering eyes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, their salty language as well. I was thinking about um, also your, your Spanish heritage. Was that sort of something that influenced you in becoming interested in the sea? Well, of course, as you know, Spaniards are uh, all interested in the sea. It seems paradoxical, I think, to the English when they look at us, uh, look at us Spaniards, and, and find that we we share a sort of maritime outlook. Because, relatively speaking, you know, the the coastline of Spain isn't uh, isn't as dominant in the culture as that of of Great Britain, the, the Iberian Peninsula, sort of, our access to the sea is interrupted by France and Portugal. Mm. Um, but but it is a, Spain is a, a deeply maritime culture. And my own family, although wasn't on the coast, uh, we do belong to a, a maritime province, to Galicia in the northwest corner and I guess you know my ancestors stared out on the Atlantic for thousands of years uh, you know without ever venturing um, onto it or certainly not very far onto it and that's also something which has always kind of puzzled me what is it that makes the difference between people um, who are um, who are kind of pinned to their coasts by onshore winds and those who, who venture um, forth to explore it. I, I, I'm obviously, you know, Spain and, and Britain are two European cultures that have produced disproportionate numbers of long-range seafarers. And that's one of the many similarities between them. Me, English people and Spaniards often see themselves as kind of Opposites, and they dwell on the many conflicts that have peppered their pasts. Um, but in many ways, I see Spain and Britain as quite similar countries. You know, both on the fringes of um, the of Europe, uh, often you know despised or hated by their continental um, neighbours. Sometimes excluded, you know, from the the mainstream of Europe. Um, uh, Pascal said that 
of the Pyrenees and the, the British themselves, you know, have always been rather equivocal about that, whether they're Europeans um, or not, and they're now crazy enough, you know, to be leaving the European uh, <laughs> Union. And I suppose also, you know, both countries are thrust out into the Atlantic. You know, if you look at the map of Europe on conventional projections, this fact is often concealed, but, but Spain is the, the apex of this sort of European, rough European triangle that, that sticks out into the uh, ocean and um, pointing out westwards from, uh, from Europe. And so both countries have a maritime perspective, which is, which is profoundly influential in shaping their their, their history and, and and still their current experience. You know, the, the, the one of the big issues in the Britain's Brexit negotiations is is fisheries. Yeah. And you know, the the I, I mean I think of English obsessions with with fisheries, the fishermen of England, a kind of um, you know, a, um stand as representative of the the adventurous spirit of the of the nation. And um, Spaniards, you know, as you know, Spanish cuisine is, is, is dominated by fish. Madrid is as far from the sea as you can get in Spain's fish market in, uh, in, in Europe. So the, the, one of the many often underappreciated similarities between Britain and Spain is this maritime outlook. Yeah, and it's particularly interesting when you mentioned there that Madrid, you know, the capital is the furthest point you can get. I mean, I think it literally is the furthest point you can get from the sea, which is obviously very different from London, which has been brought up as a port town. And that's, I think, profoundly influenced the way that it was developed. But I suppose um, you need to understand the changing capital cities of Madrid and how uh, how power moved to Madrid uh, in the early 17th century. And actually, it was much more coastal uh, before then. Well, of course, um, you know, they, they did consider making Lisbon the capital okay, in the late 16th century, um, and that is on the sea. But, but um, I mean, I think in the case of, of Madrid, the important thing is that it's equidistant from, you know, it's as near as you can get to being equidistant from the whole of the rest of the country. Uh, it's right in the middle, uh, and that's why it's furthest from the sea. England is a, a long, thin country. I, I, I think I once wrote that in a, in, in a book and my American editor said it was fatism. To speak <laughs> um, but, but, but England is a long, thin country and Spain is a kind of short, squat one. So the, so the middle of, of Spain is necessarily a long way from the sea, but it has the advantage for a capital of, of being in relatively close touch with everywhere else in the country. Yeah. Um, I'd like to ask you a little bit about the challenges of writing a global pr approach to history. There's very big themes, which is something that you've really made your own in, 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 in the past with your books and your publications. Um, what, what sort of tools do you need to be able to, to grapple with such broad themes, to come up with a, a kind of a practicable approach to writing a book whether whatever it might be maybe maybe a global history of um of of um exploration there we are one of your books <laughs> well when i when i started the only tool i needed was a pen 
uh, and, and a notebook. Uh, um, now I suppose the critical tool is a computer, alas, because I'm very bad at handling them. Um, but I know what you you mean. I suppose you mean I don't know mental or, or yeah. personality tools or anything like that. Um, and and I, I mean I don't think it's, mental it's, agility to come to the grips with big themes. I think. Well, I, I think it probably requires a certain, you know, recklessness and and um, intellectual indiscipline. Try and be interested at an academic level in so many different things, and I guess I I have always been very intellectually uh, indisciplined. I mean, I've had this this I have a great deal of difficulty controlling my own um, curiosity, which often I think gets you know, I, my critics would probably put this less generously, but I think my <laughs> often, you know, get ahead of my um, my capacity to control it, and and I, I'm and also I suppose it's also um, the search for context, you know, because you can understand nothing unless you see it in its context. And context, it's like a Russian doll, you know, there's always sort of more context outside, <laughs> beyond the kernel. And you, you keep adding context until you get a biosphere, which is, which is pretty much, I think, the all context that, that matters. As you know, Sam, there are now even more ambitious historians, guys who call themselves big Historians who think that even the planet isn't enough, and they they demand you know to see human history in the context of the entire cosmos, and you know they <laughs> they start with the the Big Bang rather as you know Bede or other medieval historians always started their micro historical they they always started with the creation of the world. Um, we're kind of back in that mode um, now. I don't go quite that far, but I do try to encompass the whole. Uh, world and to see it as a single unit of of study. When I started doing this, when I was um, young, my um, my colleagues and superiors and bosses uh, at Oxford, um, you know, didn't really think much of this uh, this enterprise. They they thought it was a you know just more evidence than I was an intellectual flippage of it. But eventually, you know, the world caught up with me, and now global history um, seems. <laughs> almost a normal thing for an historian to do. Yeah. I mean, it, what advice would you have then for a sort of a young student about to embark on a career in maritime history? Read as widely as you can about the about the uh, the cultures you're going to write about, I suppose. Well, I think the only safe advice to anybody who's in thinking of embarking on um, an academic career now don't, <laughs> you know, because the um, the... The as as Noel Coward said of of acting, the profession is overcrowded and the struggles pretty tough. That's true. Um, but of course, you know, every young woman must follow his or her vocation wherever it needs. And if you have got a a vocation for for maritime history, I, I would say my big mistake you know, was not venturing out into the maritime environment myself, not, not um, you know, handling those ropes and, 
and spas, not actually, you know, being able to shorten a sail. Uh, I mean, I've, I've written a lot about the history of navigation, but I'm absolutely practical sense. I remember going when my children were little, we went to Mystic Seaport and I with um, uh, hubris and I hope it's not always characteristic of me, decided I was going to teach my children how to use um, a sextant. And, um, <laughs> and I, I think straight conclusively that we were at the North Pole. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you know, I, I, but I, and I rather regret that. I mean, I feel that if um, if I'd started young enough and, and, and taken it seriously, I would have been able to sympathize better with the life of the sea if I'd just, um, you know, done a little bit more of it than, I don't know, cruising around um, Auckland Harbour or sailing in a major ferry from Ravenna to Constantinople. I think you'll be uh, forgiven for um, not being able to use a sextant. I actually uh, was taught by a professional navigator how to use a sextant over a series of weeks several years back and at the end of it I still couldn't do it so actually the assumption that anyone can do this tricky art of navigating all they've got to do is be taught it doesn't quite work it um, it takes a real natural ability to to, to be able to do it at all so I think there's um you know that says something about those people in the past the great navigators have just they had they had some natural talent Yes, I, I think that's um, that's a really important point for scholars to grasp. And, um, you know, in the in the what they call Great Age of Exploration in the early 16th century, when um, when Spanish initiatives in this area were so world transforming, the the pilots of the Casa de Contratación, the, the organization in Spain that, that organized Atlantic sailings, uh, were referred to were, was as was pilotos platicas. So you had to be a, a practiced pilot. They had a sort of school of navigation, but you, you, know, you can't feel your way around the sky and the sea. There's the you know, two... Um, sources of data that navigators um, in pre-industrial times relied upon, uh, unless you, you know, you spend a lot of time doing it and acquire a lot of experience. And even then, you know, you probably also need a certain gift, a certain certain intuition. That's what, of course, Columbus. Um, so, I mean, I think his reputation as a navigator is actually greatly exaggerated, but he did say that, you know, it was the navigating was uh, was like having a mystical vision. That's that's a lovely way of saying it, isn't it? What's what struck me is is the quantity and the detail of arithmetic and and long division and and all sorts of complex maths that you had to do as well. I didn't think you really had to do that, but you have to take your reading and then and then apply all sorts of tables to it before you get to this multi part system to actually tell you where you are, and then it's probably going to be a bit wrong. <laughs> Yes, that that is so. Of course, um, you know you're 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 talking about um, a level of accuracy which we've become very used to today, um, and, and which became increasingly important in the 18th and 19th centuries when the amount of shipping in narrow seas increased, when the sheer cost of a shipwreck, you know skyrocketed with the 
the um, the increasing sophistication of craft, the, the, the increasing size, the amount of cargo and man they carried. In the early modern period and before that, it, it wasn't so important to be accurate. You know, it was very much, I think navigation was very much sort of hit and miss science. And I mean, if I cite the example of, of Columbus again, of course, he did use um, tables. He consulted tables of um, uh, latitude according to the duration of daylight. That was his main, that was the main kind of um, written table that he did. Um, and really all he had to do was to was to reckon the hours of, of daylight, which isn't, isn't all that difficult. It requires fairly elementary uh, astronomical skill. And then read his latitude off his printed tables. And of course, as you rightly say, even that very simple, straightforward method um, led least because in Columbus's day, there are a lot of printer's errors in the tables. <laughs> <laughs> which he, he didn't know how to compensate for. No, that, that really doesn't help very much if the tables you're working from are in, inaccurate. No, no, it did, that did lead him into some rather bizarre mistakes. But, but, but the point was it didn't matter so much because people didn't expect, you know, the level of act. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Uh, in later centuries. Yeah, uh, it's fascinating, isn't it? Um, I was quite interesting you saying that you'd not been to sea apart from pottering around in a harbour, or you'd not spent as much time at sea as you would have liked. Um, that raised a, a, a thought in my head. Um, I've always been interested in the sea as an agent of change, as in the length of a voyage as well, being sufficient to, to fundamentally change people. So if, um, I was thinking about this in relation to the SS Great Britain and uh, people going out to Australia from England in, in the 18, late, late 19th century. And the journey was so long. 
But if you read their diaries, it's fascinating to see how much has happened to them in that process. And it was quite clear that the people who were arri- arriving in Australia were fundamentally changed. They were completely different people to those who had got on. Yes. Um, yes, you don't have to go full fathom five to suffer a sea change. Yes. Um, <laughs> Uh, yes, I, I, I'm very int- I'm very interested, Sam, that you cite the example of the SS Great Britain because I had exactly the same insight, I suppose, when once when I was in of all places San Diego in California, um, where uh, craft, you know, uh, um, uh, uh, alongside the jetty and. And one of those, the Star of India, was um, was a ship that used to take immigrants to New Zealand, and and just going aboard that that ship, and even without making a void, it, it's very instructive. I mean, it's a very vivid experience of what life was. Those diaries, they actually printed newspapers. They had a daily newspaper which they printed on board the the. Um, the ship, which records, you know, all of these these activities, so all their leisure activities, all their concert parties, and you know, and and, um, and 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 in a strange way, you know, they were trying these very cramped and strange and dangerous conditions to keep going the sort of life which the migrants would have have. Have led in their um, in their their homes in urban and provincial uh, England and New Zealand. You know they they again tried to recreate back home, but you can see what a struggle it all was because the the experiences and the changes of environment made those those continuities impossible to realise with fidelity. In practice, and in a way, you know, my impression is that those journeys were kind of, you know, long spells of tension between these these two tendencies: the one to try and cling to a familiar way of life, the other, the necessity of embracing what was new and and unexperienced previously. And I get a real sense that they were going. They knew they were going through a kind of metamorphosis. They knew they were going through a change, and you can see that I think particularly in the graffiti, which is carved in in the great beams of the hull of the SS Great Britain. It's a bit like people making marks on the wall of a prison. They were kind of they were they were they were ticking off time, but they were also wanting to say, "I I have been here." Part of my my life, my soul has changed whilst I was on this ship. I thought it was really moving. Well, that, that's fascinating. I, I suppose they weren't just trying to dig their way out. <laughs> that would be a bad idea in the middle of the Atlantic. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, really, really good. So what we're talking about here, I suppose, is the the value of the sea itself as a location for history to happen to people. But at the same time, you write particularly about how maritime history is such a powerful tool for studying encounters between cultures. So that's the you know a different aspect of it when you've got you've got one culture from one side of an ocean coming coming into contact with another side. And it is particularly powerful, wouldn't you say? Yes, of course that usually only happens when they reach land. <laughs> um 
Although, of course, you can have cultural encounters at sea, particularly in the course of the history of of, um, of piracy, when when you know when 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 one um, ship captures another and takes the crew on board as prisoners, uh, or when um, you know uh, um, ships are rescued um, and people from one culture come into contact with. Um, another uh, by that method, or in slave trade on slave trade ships, where um, where people from from a lot of different cultures, often in the case of slave trade ships, are thrust together in the holds of these stinking vessels, um, and also of course come into contact with their their um, with the traders and transporters who are who become responsible for them. Um, so there are yes, you know, there are moments when when ships at sea become, uh, I don't know, clusters of cultural exchange. But most of the encounters happen don't happen until the the guys you know reach some alien shore and find themselves in the company of characters whom they are hard pressed to understand, and of course often hard pressed to communicate with because. Uh, normally they don't have a a common common language. Yeah, I mean, it's the challenge which historians then face as well, isn't it? To be able to recreate that meeting of cultures from both perspectives, because it's so heavily dominant from that which might have a, a, a written tradition which has survived, as opposed to an oral tradition which may have lost or become harder to recover. Yes, I think that's very... Uh, there's a very great danger that we are often misled about the nature of these encounters because we, uh, we, 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 we naturally rely on such sources as survive. And sometimes when a literate culture encounters a pre-literate culture or a literate culture whose writings we cannot read, um, you know, we tend to go along with what the, the literate guys have, have <laughs> left us. And I think that's a terrible mistake. You know, what you've got to try and do is is read between the lines of their, their accounts to see what they were really, really up to. And, and, and obviously, you know, one of the big distorting influences is prejudice. Um, I, I've got Columbus is rather on my, my mind at the... Um, at the moment, because as we are having this conversation, Sam, you know, there are people producing him in tweets and toppling his statues um, all over the world. And at my own university, we have these um, these murals painted in the 1880s showing Columbus arriving in the Americas. And we, we used to be very, very proud of these, but we're now rather ashamed of them. And we're, we've actually covered them up in order to protect you know, from uh, from possible um, uh, insult and ignominy um, and obloquy, um, but you know, Columbus is a great example because when he made the first record of any European person's perceptions of indigenous people on the far side of the uh, Atlantic. Uh, he he wrote, of course, you know, in an, in an idiom and with allusions which were entirely familiar to him, but which are evidently unrecognisable 
to most of the people who read them nowadays, and therefore they don't read them the way they were intended, and they don't see them. Columbus was extremely conflicted about his perceptions of the people he encountered, and on the whole, you know, his perceptions of them were very positive. Um, he was favorably impressed to some extent by their nakedness. He thought that might resemble the nakedness of St. Francis and be evidence of a kind of dependence on God, which for his contemporaries back in Europe was an ideal, which, you know, they strove for and could very rarely attain. They could only attain it by tremendous sacrifice and adoption of a religious life. And he also thought, you know, that these people might be living in a, a golden age resembling that of which classical poets sang, an almost, you know, prelapsarian state of of innocence. But of course, you know, he also thought that maybe their, their nakedness and their rudimentary material culture were evidence of of savagery, and he was genuinely conflicted. And you, you know, it, 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 it's almost impossible to get my contemporaries, um, even my students, you know, have difficulty understanding um, uh, this because the, the 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 language and imagery Columbus was using is so unfamiliar to them. So there are all kinds of traps. You know, which we need to elude when we when we study the sources for these now, you know, remote encounters. And the hardest thing in any humanistic discipline is traversing those chasms of culture which lie between us and the the text, documents, and material evidence with which we're struggling. Yeah. So it's fascinating. This we've talked about the the sea as a location for history in its own right and then and about things happening to people and them changing and then we've talked about different cultures meeting and clashing uh, brought together by the sea and there's one aspect to this which we haven't talked about which is um it's actually linked to what I'm fascinated at the moment in the way that maritime history is helping us understand climate change and they're doing that by um historians are studying ships logs going back through the years across the years where ships logs are fantastic because they're full of the most wonderfully accurate climatic observations so we know where there was sea ice we know what the temperature was like we know what the sky was like all over the world for many many years and but but there you've got a lot of ships who are sailing in complete isolation up the um you know around the poles particularly and so you've got these ships operating in in total isolation and i think their react relationship their understanding of the natural world they're sailing through is also a fascinating a fascinating aspect of maritime history yes i mean i i i, I suppose what strikes one most is that even um you know that, that sort of relatively banal and 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 um i don't know sort of factual type of record that you find in in ships logs in the modern era um, it is it is in a sense literature um, and it is shaped by the the exchange between mind and environment uh, and there are, you know there sometimes are sort of rather um, romantic sallies and sometimes you know reflections which I think do capture that that loneliness of which you you speak, and that um, you know that sense of being in a an environment which challenges and stimulates the imagination. 
And I guess that's one of the ways in which, um, you know, the effect that you were speaking of earlier, the transmutative effect that long and lonely, especially lonely voyages have on the, the personality of the person experiencing them. Yeah. I think that does come through occasionally. Of course, if you go back, you know, um, um, the evidence is much sparser, and obviously from the point of view of tracing the history of climate change, you know, I don't think maritime records are, are enormously um, helpful um, beyond the um, you know, 18th century, uh, although there are occasional observations which can be uh, illuminating. Um, but that tendency, you know, to mix um, uh, different types of data, mix very commonplace observations of the, the state of the sea and the weather, the, um, the lie of the, the land if you're offshore and above all, of course, the most important thing always is the direction. And if you can calculate it, the pace of the, the wind. I mean, those things are... You know, they're always there, but they, the further you go back, the, the more you find them interspersed with, um, uh, with more input from the, uh, from the imagination and character of the, of the writer. And I, I mean, there's some very interesting work, which may specialists dismiss, but which I'm rather attracted by on um, uh, ancient sailing direction some fragments of which, you know, survive from Greek and Roman times, um, and some of which are echoed in literature, especially in, in poetry, which deals with maritime subjects. So, you know, you can read the Odyssey and you can see how, um, you know, so a lot of the imagery is kind of echoes the language with which the uh, ancient Greek, with which ancient Greek astronomers wrote about the sky, uh, and I think that interplay is um, uh, is 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 you know very it's very worth following that kind of insight up because I think it'll teach us uh, if it's true, and I suspect it is. I think it'll teach us a lot about the way um, the people who 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 drew up these these rushes and these sailing directions. Uh, interacted with the sea and with the culture that they were carrying with them on shipboard. Yeah, yeah. I suppose the one final aspect to this, and then I promise I'll let you go, um, it's all been too interesting though, is the, the, you just hinted at it there, it's the changing relationship between humankind and the sea. And it might have started off as being very... Um, simple as a, as a source for food and then it might have moved on to uh, an ability to 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 travel overseas and what's your view on how humans have the changing relationship between humans and the sea over time um well of course um um uh, i'm one of the things that i'm rather notorious for is having suggested that the first farmed food was was mollusks you know because on the seashore you can actually select and hybridize amongst um, uh, shellfish in rock pools, you know, with various elementary technology. All you need is a rock pool. Uh, you don't need, you know, a lead snail or, um, you know, <laughs> uh, um, uh, 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 you don't need to create a corral or anything like that. Um, and, and, of course, they're very small creatures. And, and, and I, you know, and I, I think there is a great deal of evidence 
um, for that. But even that's quite late by late evidence, by it goes back maybe about 10,000 years. It's rather late evidence by the standards of the antiquity of human interactions with the sea. And I think, you know, it really goes back, this is not just a question about homo sapiens, this is a question about how our hominid ancestors related to the sea. You know, how did um, Homo floresiensis gets to the island of, of Flourish, which even you know, a million years ago was already an island. Um, how did um, Homo erectus get to Java at a time when it was cut off by sea from the uh, land-based migratory routes, which those guys might have been following 800,000 or so um, years ago? And I think really that... Um, you know, the, the problem that I, I started with, the problem my own ancestors, why didn't they venture onto the, the sea? Why did other uh, human creatures um, do so? Is as relevant, you know, to the remotest prehistory of which we can speak coherently as it is to the rest of maritime history and to the, you know, the differences of taste that separate, you know, uh, um, um, a tar and a yachtsman like you from a landlubber like like me. There's you know, there's something. To, there's a problem of human psychology here, and I think it's humbling and fascinating to know those those problems of human psychology embrace us and other species ancestral to or cognate with our own. Well, that's a kind of um, a broad theme. I was very much hoping we'd be able to discuss. Felix, thank you so much indeed for your time. On the contrary, it's been a very great privilege to take part in what I, I, I hope will be a very successful project. Sam, good luck with it. Thank you. As always, we've had some fascinating contributions on the forum of the Society for Nautical Research. Many thanks for getting in touch, everyone who has. Here's one from Paul Martinovich. Under what circumstances would a lieutenant sign the captain's log for a warship? I was under the impression that the captain signing the log was a pretty serious matter, given that it could be cited as evidence in a court-martial or other legal proceeding. The example I have in mind is that of Lieutenant Charles Malcolm, first lieutenant of the Suffolk in 1801, who signed the log both on the title page and at the end for the ship, which was commanded by his brother, Captain Pulteney Malcolm. Does this suggest that the older Malcolm was sick or otherwise unable when the log was being made up in October 1801, or might there be some other explanation? I have no other information that Pulteney Malcolm was hors de combat at this time. In fact, he was about to transfer to another ship. Mm, interesting question there, Paul. Thank you very much for getting in touch. There is uh, several answers online for you to check out there. We've had a question from at hold Tony on Twitter with a photograph. He attaches a photograph. This ship is carved into the gatepost of the Chateau de Romville in Normandy. Any suggestions as to its identity and date? Um, some answers have also been posted there. It's a wonderful little image. I'd urge you all to check that out. Another query on Twitter from at Sarah Ward AU. Here's a question for academic Twitter. She writes, 
Who is working or knows someone who is working on the archaeology, cultural heritage or material culture of the Canton trade with China? I'm particularly keen to talk to anyone who is investigating sites in China or looking at the material culture of the Swedish, English, Dutch, French or other companies in the region. There may be a book in it for you. Please retweet, share the love and get in touch if this is you or your beloved colleague very much. Uh, thank you very much, Sarah, for getting in touch with us. I'd urge you all uh, to follow her. She does some fascinating stuff. But that's it for the end of this week. I very much hope that you've enjoyed yourselves. Please do follow us on social media. Uh, you can follow the Society for Nautical Research at Nautical History on Twitter. You can find us on Facebook. The Mariner's Mirror has got its own Instagram page and YouTube channel. And there's going to be some fascinating material being posted on both in the coming weeks. What else can you do? Well, please do join the Society for Nautical Research. You can find us at snr.org.uk and your subscription fee will go towards publishing the most important naval and maritime history and to preserving the world's maritime heritage. Thank you very much indeed for listening. <laughs>